I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show and podcast where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. In the desert north of Tucson, Arizona, a wildlife bridge that's seeded with native plants and overseen by cameras spans Oracle Road, a byway that bisects the Sonoran Desert. Bighorn sheep, mountain lions, javelinas, and mule deer all use the bridge and a nearby underpass. And these wildlife crossings are what our guest calls road ecology, an exercise in perceiving the world through non-human eyes. Journalist Ben Goldfarb writes in his new book, To us, roads are so mundane they're practically invisible. To wildlife, they're utterly alien. Goldfarb's book takes us around the world where scientists are experimenting with new ways to diminish the disruption of roads and highways, including here in Minnesota, where drivers were crushing turtles at a startling rate. Mr. Goldfarb writes about the environment, and his new book is titled Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. And he joins us this morning from L.A. And Ben, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Carrie. It's great to be here. I have to say I was skeptical that a book on roads would be either exciting or, you know, transformational. But I have to say that I see the roads I'm traveling in a whole different way, particularly when I see the evidence of how dangerous they are to wildlife. One of the things you say is that roadkill claims the lives of more animals than hunting. And that was pretty startling to read. Yeah, you know, it's it's I think because we've all look, we've all seen the dead white-tailed deer or a possum or raccoon by the the shoulder, right? And because that's such a a common inescapable sight in modernity, you know, we tend to uh ignore or overlook those impacts. You know, roadkill is just sort of all around us and as a, as a result, we don't really see it clearly just as we don't really see our roads clearly because we drive them constantly. But, you know, look, we're we're living in the middle of this mass extinction event, right? We're, you know, in the in the the center of this profound biodiversity crisis and, you know, roadkill is is an enormous and unsung part of that crisis, no question. I thought it was interesting that you say it's not only how many animals uh, are being claimed, but one of roadkill's cruelest aspects is not how many animals it calls, but which ones. Explain what that means. Right. So you can imagine that, you know, in nature, if you if you have a, a, a natural wild predator like a, a wolf or a, a mountain lion, you know, those those predators are disproportionately taking older, sicker uh, animals from the population. You know, they're targeting those those uh, those ailing uh, white-tailed deer or moose. You know, they're they're selectively removing the, you know, the, the less fit members, whereas the car is a, a totally indiscriminate predator, right? It's it's hitting whatever walks in front of it, whether that's a, you know, a, a, an older, sicker animal or a young, healthy one. And, you know, those young, healthy animals that uh, roadkill is culling from the population, you know, those are the most important members of the population in a lot of ways, right? Those are the the breeding animals with, you know, good fit genetics uh, mm. that, that populations need to survive. So roadkill, again, by being this kind of undiscerning remover of animals uh, is, uh, is having, a, you know, immense ecological consequences. You know, there's lots of research showing that, for example, 
salamanders, you know, the, the older uh, female salamanders, the really important members of the population who, you know, produce the most eggs, you know, those are exactly the individuals who are getting crushed. So it's, it's that indiscriminate nature of roadkill that's a, a big problem as well. Who's actually keeping track of the, the lives of animals and amphibians and others that are being claimed on the roads? I mean, is this up to individual counties or where were you finding the research about which animals are being killed? Yeah, you know, we don't we don't really keep great records in a lot of cases. You know, when you have larger animals like like deer or elk or moose, you know, those are those big carcasses are are often being removed by highway maintenance personnel. And you know, in many states, uh, they're keeping track of the carcasses they remove. But you know, those those smaller uh, animals like it, like the amphibians, especially, nobody's counting those. You know, or when they are being counted, it's just individual scientists who are out there, uh, you know, doing studies in isolated areas. There's really no national accounting of how many animals uh, are being killed. And, you know, the, the kind of the common uh, statistic you hear is more than a million vertebrate animals every day to say nothing of the insects. Oh and, gosh. you know, that's that's based wow. on, yeah, it's, it's kind of mind blowing. But even that number is is based on roadkill surveys that were done back in the 1960s. And, you know, no question, driving rates and number of cars on the road have just gone up since then. So, uh, you know, even even uh, a million animals a day is probably uh, an outdated statistic. Wow. You know, it is not unusual because we live in a in a part of the country where there's a lot of deer. It's not unusual to see, you know, the carcass, uh, the new carcass of a deer like every couple of days on the roads that I drive, and I'm sure our listeners have had this experience constantly. And yet, I do think we have a mindset that that is just the price that has to be paid to move people from one place to the other. I never really stop to think what kind of an impact that's having, you know, on deer populations and which animals are actually being taken out and how dangerous it is I mean, what a severe danger that is for everybody else who's moving from point A to point B. We've just started, I guess, gotten used to taking this as the the price you pay for, you know, for transportation, the way the way we do it today. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And, and uh, you know, that's one of the, the paradoxes of roads that I try to explore in this book is that, look, to us humans, you know, roads are these forces of connectivity and and movement and mobility, uh, you know, and, and of course, I use roads all the time, right? Here I am, I'm, I'm coming to you from Los Angeles, you know, the uh, America's car capital, and I've been, you know, driving around all week to promote my book about the ills of driving, you know, and we're all, we're all sort of complicit in this, and, you know, roads are unquestionably uh, incredibly useful in so many ways, you know, they get us to schools and hospitals, and they get crops to market, and, and so on, right? And, you know, so I, I, I um, yeah, it's, you know, there's, we all, we all use these structures. And, you know, I think that one of the ironies that I, I try to explore in the book is that, again, for us, you know, there are these symbols of mobility and also of freedom, right? Mm, uh, you know, every right. every great uh, mid-century writer and artist and musician 
celebrated the romance of the open highway, you know, from Jack Kerouac to Bruce Springsteen to Prince, uh, you know, it's who, I, who of course is, uh, you know, your state symbol. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but the, that's the irony, right? Is that, is that for us, you know, roads are enhancing movement and mobility and freedom, but for basically every non-human species out there, uh, they're doing exactly the opposite. They're curtailing movement and, and mobility and freedom. And, you know, they're ending lives directly. You know, we've been talking about roadkill, but there's also the barrier effect that highways create, you know, this steady stream of traffic prevents animals, many animals, from even attempting to cross highways. And so roads are limiting animals' ability to move around the landscape, even as they're allowing us to move around the landscape. Yeah, I want to talk about turtles, since I I think we're a turtle-loving people up in this part of the country, that this summer, a county park (laughs) system put in turtle tunnels where the turtles are guided into these passages by fencing and then they cross some of these busy roads safely. And you tell a story about Matthew Oresco, who after years of documenting turtle massacres in Florida, came up with this really clever solution that ended up getting, after some years, some federal funding. So explain explain how he had to shift his perspective to see this from the turtle perspective and then how he was able to persuade, you know, uh, people with the money to end up funding the project. What's it look like? Yeah, that's I'm, I'm glad you brought up Matt Oresco because that's, that's one of my favorite stories in the book. So, you know, Matt, is a, he's a, a herpetologist, a, a, a scientist who studies reptiles, and he's a, a great turtle lover. Always, he's always been a turtle lover. Uh, and uh, he, he lives in Florida. And, and uh, a number of years ago, in the early 2000s, uh, he became aware of this turtle massacre that was happening uh, on, uh, on a, a highway that split uh, two wetlands in half, essentially. And the turtles were moving between the wetlands over the surface of the road and just getting slaughtered in you know almost unfathomable numbers and so what he started doing you know, really a, a great personal danger was basically scooping up all of these turtles uh in these big rubber made containers and running across the road to uh escort these animals uh, across the highway and he moved thousands of turtles like this uh over the course of many months but you know all the while he knew that that was not a long-term permanent solution and so he advocated for many years for the, the state of Florida to build one of those those turtle crossings you're describing. Basically, uh, you know, a concrete, the, the vision was sort of a concrete barrier that would prevent the turtles from going up onto the highway. Uh, and then there would be a, a series of culverts, you know, these big pipes uh, under the road that the, you know, the turtles would, they'd hit the barrier and they, they would, you know, walk parallel to the road along the wall and they'd find one of those culverts and, you know, and go right through it. Uh, and, you know, he, he really summoned this amazing sort of uh, coalition, this campaign uh, of turtle advocates to, to push for this, uh, this eco-passage, as he called it. And, you know, the turtle advocates wrote literally thousands of letters, you know, turtle lovers all over the world were lobbying the state of Florida to, to build one of these things. And finally, uh, in, uh, in 2008, 
uh, you know, the big, um, or really in 2009, you know, the, the Obama administration passed, you know, this big stimulus package uh, in the wake of, uh, of recession. And, and some of that money uh, ended up going towards this eco passage. But, you know, then, of course, uh, Fox News kind of caught wind of that. And this became like the ultimate example of stimulus waste. You know, how could $3 million <laughs> possibly go to turtles? And so this became this, you know, this huge controversy, you know, it's, and it's interesting to think that, look, in, in general, you know, wildlife crossing, for animals like deer uh, are pretty non-controversial and non-partisan because, you know, nobody wants to hit a deer, right? Deer, right, you know, a couple right. hundred drivers die in deer collisions every year. And, you know, they're very expensive uh, car wrecks frequently. But, you know, turtles, were it was sort of seen as this frivolous waste of money, essentially. And, and yet, you know, uh, Oresco and the state of Florida persisted and uh, Eco Passage got built. And, you know, turtle collisions basically instantly fell to zero uh, and it, it, it became a, a non-issue uh, essentially overnight. So it's, it ended up being a, a really beautiful example of, uh, you know, how this powerful nature loving force can uh, come together to save these, uh, these wonderful critters. Yeah. So in, in the introduction, I described this Oracle Road overpass that I've actually seen north of Tucson. Oh, you have? Cool. Yeah. yeah. So how would you describe how many different you know, passages and tunnels. I mean, give me a sense of how creative uh, ecologists have gotten in trying to get wildlife safely over our roads. Are there just a lot of different designs or are there a few standard things that people are doing? How's it work? Well, yeah, you know, I think that one of the important things to remember and one of the things that, you know, road ecologists, the scientists who study this issue have learned over the years is that every species requires something a little bit different, right, in terms of a passage. You know, animals are, they all sort of fill different niches and they all have different senses and they all, you know, perceive the landscape in a, a different way. Uh, you know, one example of that. Uh, is are these these wildlife passages uh, in Wyoming that I, I write about in the mm, book, and you know there right. they have these big migratory herds of mule deer and and uh, pronghorn antelope, uh, and the mule deer are very happy using underpasses, you know, these big uh, box culverts and other other structures that take them under the road. But the pronghorn, you know, they're, they really require overpasses. And the reason for that is that they have, you know, they're the fastest uh, land animal uh, in, in North America. Uh, they're, so they're incredibly fast and, and they have amazing eyesight. Uh, and so for an animal like that, an animal that survives with its far, uh, you know, it's far-sighted vision and it's speed, you know, they really want to be out in open country. You know, they don't want to be in a little cramped culvert. You know, they want to be up on the open deck of a of a big bridge. So, you know, in that case in, in Wyoming, where they've got, you know, these two different species migrating across the landscape, they built these underpasses that get used primarily by, by mule deer. And, you know, underpasses are nice too, because they're a little bit cheaper uh, than overpasses. But then they also have the overpasses uh, for the pronghorn as well. So you have to account for those different species. And it's not just the large animals, too. You know, you, you could imagine uh, rodents. You know, rodents are not going to run across the wide open deck of a bridge because they're going to get picked off by hawks. You know, they need those little rock piles and log jams and other uh, bits of cover and structure that they can hide in and kind of hopscotch across the bridge from, you know, rock pile to rock pile. So, you know, you have to be thinking about all of these different creatures that, again, experience uh, ecosystems in different ways and have different habitat requirements. And, you know, these wildlife crossings are really ecosystems in their in their own right that, that uh, need to account for all those different critters. 
And it really is as I think as you describe in some different ways in the book, it is being able to see the landscape from the perspective of the animal that wants to get from one place to the other, which I gather is a relatively new idea in in science, in road ecology. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I think I think that certainly some road ecologists have, you know, been doing that for a long time. But, you know, increasingly, uh, you know, I, th- I think I think you're right that, you know, thinking like an animal and not just like any animal, like, you know, every animal who might experience the the uh, a wildlife crossing, that's really imperative. You know, one example of that. So, I'm, you know, I, I live in Colorado, but uh, I'm, I'm in uh, I'm in Los Angeles uh, this this week, um, in part visiting a, a wildlife crossing that's being constructed right now over uh, over the 101, you know, which is the, oh, the busiest wow. uh, freeway in the in the country. Uh, and, you know, and, and there, I mean, there's, you know, this, there's this whole diverse ecosystem, right? There, you know, yes, there are mountain lions, which are kind of the flagship species for this big overpass that's being built, but there are also mule deer and, and, uh, and gray foxes and bobcats and coyotes. And, you know, there are these little birds called wren tits that, uh, you know, that don't really fly over the highway, they have to kind of jump from bush to bush and there are snakes and lizards. And so they're trying to account for all of these different creatures in the in the design and construction of this wildlife crossing. You know, they're going to be little oak thickets and again, those those rock piles and log jams that we know are really important for the rodents and the uh, the reptiles. Uh, you know, they're they're sort of there's native prairie and chaparral, you know, they're really trying to create this new ecosystem essentially that spans the highway because again they're you know they're thinking about every single creature within that system and i've i've heard all of those different uh little habitat features like the rock piles and the log jams called Faunal furniture, which is a, a term that I, I really like, <laughs> and, and um, yeah, it's, it's really great. And so, you know, the, the designers of this crossing are, are they, again, they're trying to put themselves in the paws and hooves of all of these different species who, uh, you know, might be encountering that that highway in different ways. And you know, it's also important to remember too that. You know, for those species, sensory pollution is a really big problem, right? right. You know, the, all of those headlights and all of the traffic noise, you know, can, can, that, and that's, there's lots of research showing that that sensory pollution chases animals away from roadways. So they're also putting in, Burns and vegetated screens and walls that uh, that kind of blunt some of that sensory pollution to make the crossing more more attractive. So you gotta you gotta think like a critter in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about the sensory uh, the noise pollution basically for animals in some of these quiet, beautiful places. But first, let me remind listeners if you've just tuned in. Uh, I'm in conversation with Ben Goldfarb about his new book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. And you can hear our conversation developing here about this idea of the science of road ecology, which is scientists trying to put themselves in the perspective of the animal that needs to cross all of the roads that bisect our planet. Um, Mr. Goldfarb takes us around the world where scientists are experimenting with all different ways to get animals from point A to point B. I mentioned uh, an overpass uh, in north of Tucson. He's in L.A. where uh, they're putting in this really neat overpass for a lot of different animals and birds. We're talking about how road ecology developed and then where it's going from here. So I, I want to stop for just one moment and talk about car culture, because, again, you're in L.A. 
which is just hugely committed to the idea of of car culture. You right. put this remarkable photo in the book to demonstrate the rise of car culture and car camping in America. This is something I'd never read before, Ben. And, and you have this picture of Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, John Burroughs, and Harvey Firestone. What are they doing in the picture? And how did they come together on this? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's a, a, another amazing story that was new to me before I, I started working on this book. So, yeah. you know, those those guys sort of, you know, all of these industrial titans in the early 20th century, you know, they all became friends through their, their industry associations. And, you know, they started embarking uh, on these annual camping trips. They called themselves the, the vagabonds. And they would go out in these, you know, these convoys of cars to, uh, you know, the Smoky Mountains or the Adirondacks or Western Pennsylvania uh, or California or, or the Everglades. You know, they, they, they made these annual car camping uh, trips a, a tradition. And, that, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because, of course, you know, now the 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 American road trip is such a, a, a cultural staple, and I'm you know I'm sure right. that most of the the listeners uh, 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 to this show have you know have been on, on a, a car a car camping trip to a national park at, at some point in their lives, and certainly I've you know I've done dozens of those trips, and they're they're so much fun, right? Um, but you know at the, at the time this was this was really this new idea that you would go out into nature using the car as as the intermediary, uh, and uh, you know and experience the wilds, uh, and uh, you know they, these guys were. They weren't really roughing it, right? They had, you know, they had uh, this this whole entourage of of butlers and cooks and uh, and and wait staff. But you know, the the, uh, the the media at the time loved the idea of these, you know, sort of titans of American industry returning to nature in this rugged, masculine way. And and so, you know, it was really uh, Edison and, and Ford in particular, you know, the two most famous men in America at the time who made car camping and, and car culture a, a thing in, a, in a, a lot of ways. And, you know, that's, that's again, one of the ironies of, of roads is that over time, they became the way that we experience nature, right? That's how we get out, uh, you know, into our national forests and national parks and other other wild spaces, uh, you know, to commune with with nature and uh, and with wildlife. And, you know, the, the National Park Service was, a, a you know, a huge uh, booster of cars uh, early on and forged all of these uh, alliances with the American Automobile Association because, you know, the National Park Service knew that, you know, the way to build a, a constituency for the conservation of, of these lands was through inviting visitors to come see them. And the way that you come see national parks uh, to this day is, is by car. So that's, that's the, again, the, the irony of roads is that they've historically been integral to the conservation of some of our most beloved landscapes. Uh, and they're how we experience those landscapes, even as they're destroying the wildlife and the ecosystems <laughs> yeah. that, they, that they pass through. My God, I, I really love this perspective. Um, you write, for centuries, nature had been the unruly enemy of yeoman homesteaders. Now the vagabonds forecast it as a manly respite from feminized city life. I mean, this was really an identity, you know, a piece of the identity of what it felt like to be an American. And nobody really thought about the costs of that, I think. Right. Yeah, I, th I think I think you're you're exactly right about that. You know, there are all of these all of these 
sort of tourism boosters. You know, there was this big campaign called See America First, uh, you know, which has interesting resonances, I think, with uh, with modernity. But, uh, you know, in the, in the early 1900s, you know, if you were, uh, you know, if you were a, an upper crust socialite, you know, you you went to Europe, you know, you took a, a steamship to uh, to Europe and, you know, you went to the, the Swiss Alps, you know, and the idea that, uh, you know, that uh, that America had domestic nature worth visiting was, was sort of foreign to people. Uh, and then, you know, the Sea America First campaign and the vagabonds uh, together, you know, created this idea again of the, you know, the great American road trip that in fact, there was so much nature uh, to see here in, uh, here in the, the U.S. And, and the car was the way you did it, you know, and there were just all of these, I mean, just the, the whole camping industrial complex exploded, uh, you know, around the time of the vagabonds. And, you know, there were no, you know, there were, there were very few motels, you know, there were really very few public campgrounds, you know, campers were just pitching tents in, in farmers' fields, basically, uh, <laughs> until, uh, you know, until the Forest Service and the Park Service and private campground hosts began building the infrastructure to accommodate uh, all of these these tourists. And, you know, and really, that's that's how the car became so dominant in a lot of ways. You know, it wasn't necessarily because the car was so useful, although it certainly had its uses. It was really because the car liberated America. You know, it made it possible to take these to take these vacations. You know, if you were a, you know, a, a factory worker, you know, it's well, all of a sudden, all of these affordable Model Ts are rolling off the line, you know, around uh, around 1910. Right. And suddenly, you know, the idea of leisure time and recreation and and experiencing the outdoors is suddenly available to you. So the car was sort of a, a democratizer of travel and uh, and vacation in a way that, you know, travel had not been accessible when, you know, when everybody was taking steamships to Europe to go visit the Swiss Alps. Yeah. You know, Ben, I've driven the going to the sun road to Glacier. You have yeah. too, I assume? Yeah, several times. Were you, I mean, it's an iconic place. And, you know, it's one of those things that if you're, if you get into a conversation with a friend about all the national parks you've, you've been to, you know, Glacier is just one of the places you do not want to miss. Yeah, And yet I never thought about what the the wildlife in that proximity must see and hear from all these cars traveling on the going to the sun road so so describe what you've what you've discovered about what that's like for the wildlife and the proximity of it right so you know going to the sun is this it's this iconic beautiful uh incredibly hubristic road that the park mm-hmm. service basically you know blasted out of the the face of the the uh, the mountains and cliffs in in glacier and and uh you know and the, and the park service you know all of the, i mean the park service was building all of these giant crazy grandiose iconic roads in the early 20th century you know not just in glacier but you know in denali and yellowstone and uh you know the the smokies and shenandoah uh you know is the, the the 1920s and 30s were this period of, of sort of national park infrastructure explosion and you know going to the sun road was was really uh you know epitomized that in a in a, a lot of ways and uh, you know, one of the one of the things that researchers have discovered more recently is that you know all of these all of these national park roads uh, have enormous sonic impacts, right? That they're really these forms of acoustic pollution, and and the reason for that is that you know they're because they're built through the middle of these landscapes and going to the sun is the perfect example of this because it's, you know, it's kind of elevated, right? It winds up the face of this mountain. So it's broadcasting 
noise pollution all over this mm. this all over all over the national park essentially all over all over glacier uh and you know it's it, we're we're as humans we're so awash in road noise that i think we we generally don't notice it but you know for wild animals it's incredibly disruptive you know it really is this form of habitat loss because if you know if you're i mean you think about uh you know imagine being an owl for example you know if you're an owl you you have incredibly sensitive keen hearing and you have to listen for you know the rustle of a, a mouse's feet in the leaf litter and if you know if that if the sound of your prey is masked by all of this engine and tire noise uh you know then then you can't functionally live there so you know a road like going to the sun might only be a hundred feet wide from shoulder to shoulder and yet it's casting this acoustic shadow that can span miles uh, and is again you know functionally this this massive form of, of habitat loss so that's you know one of the things that the National Park Service has discovered in the last 10 to 20 years is that you know is that is that road noise pollution in national parks is everywhere you know national parks are these spaces where animals are safe from hunting and development and all of the other pressures that operate outside of parks but they're not safe from cars they're not safe from becoming roadkill themselves you know, unfortunately, I've I've uh, I've hit animals in in national parks, uh, and they're not safe from the noise pollution that all of these grandiose elevated uh, park roads are are broadcasting uh, all over the park system. So, what does the Park Service now that they they know this and they know the scope of the challenge? What can they do about it? I think the most important thing that the, that the Park Service can do is is just limit the number of, of cars in, in national parks. And, you know, obviously that's somewhat uh, a heretical idea in a lot of ways, because, again, cars are, you know, the way that we experience these spaces. But there, there are lots of great examples of parks, uh, including Glacier, that have gone to these shuttle systems, you know, where you basically, uh, you know, you park, in a, you park in a parking lot, you give your car up and, you know, you get on you get on the bus. Uh, and that's a, a fantastic way to uh, to limit the uh, the amount of noise that, uh, you know, that um Park roads are creating, and you know it's also it's also a way to enhance connectivity. You know, to allow animals to move safely through these parks without this constant stream of traffic. One of the places I, I visited uh, in working on this book was Denali National oh, Park yeah. in, in Alaska, where there's this. That. Yeah, it's you know it's an amazing place because there you know there's this wonderful shuttle system uh, that covers really almost almost the entirety of the park road. It's you know it's it's basically impossible to take your your private vehicle uh, on the vast majority of the Denali Road, and you have to get on these shuttles. And the shuttles are operated in such a way that there are gaps between them for animals to migrate across the road. So again, there's not this steady stream of traffic. There's, you know, there there are these intervals where animals can can move safely. And, you know, I think that there are, you know, there are so many uh, intensely automotive national parks like Yellowstone, for example, where there really is no shuttle system, where that kind of model, you know, more public transit opportunities that reduce the number of cars on the road. I think that's a, you know, it's a great way to experience uh, the parks as, as, uh, as visitors. And it's also uh, incredibly beneficial to wildlife. What, what was the reaction as more and more of the national parks, you know, were funneling tourists together and, you know, turning it into more, well, I, I think there's an upside to turning it into more of a collective experience too, right? You're having this experience with other people that are there to marvel at at the majesty of these places. But But tell me how people have reacted to this. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I I agree with you. You know, I I love I love riding these bus systems because it you know it, it does turn nature watching into this collective communal experience. And you're all you know looking in Denali, you're all looking for 
doll sheep and and uh, caribou and ptarmigan together you know when you when you when you see one it's this you know it's this it's this wonderful uh, again collective experience where the whole bus is sort of celebrating in in unison and so i, I think it you know it makes it incredibly fun but it's you know it it uh, there's definitely been you know, plenty of, of pushback because, you know, in going to a shuttle system, you know, you do, uh, in some cases, you know, you limit the, the number of tourists who can theoretically visit a place. And, and, uh, you know, when the, when the Denali, when Denali went to a shuttle system, uh, in the 1980s, you know, you, I mean, I went back and read, you know, the local newspaper archives and, and there's just this endless stream of, of, uh, angry letters from, you know, ho- hotel operators and, and, uh, you know, and the, the cruise tourism industry and, and so on complaining that they're basically, uh, you know, they're, they're, essentially locking up the park because, uh, you know, where we as Americans are sort of accustomed, I think, to be able to being able to go wherever we want, whenever we want in our cars uh, and anything that restricts that uh, is is uh, anathema to us in a, a lot of ways. And, you know, I think a lot of the, the kind of the big tourism industry was it was afraid that, uh, you know, in restricting car travel, you know, it was going to hurt their their business. And, you know, I think there are still concerns about that you know every i mean one of the, as one of the park managers pointed out to me you know every time they build a new hotel near denali uh you know well there you know there's there's uh, 80 new uh, heads on pillows and and uh right. you know where is the bus to accommodate those people you know um so there there is this notion i think that uh, you know our access should be totally unfettered and uh you know and that anything that restricts cars is is essentially wrong-headed but uh you know there's no question that these again these systems are you know look if, if national parks are truly to be protected areas that contri- that contribute to the conservation of wildlife you know then we need to deal with their car problem you know it's so it's so contentious because i was recently in in iceland and one of our guides mm-hmm. was saying we were standing on top of a volcano and looking down into a pristine harbor where they had just allowed cruise ships to come in. And one Mm. of the things that the guide was talking about was the noise pollution for the marine life in this harbor, how they'd never experienced it before. And now that was one of the things that the locals were concerned about. And reading your book made me think there's so many, there's so many passages where I think we're just fully unaware of what the the sound and the intrusion, what the consequence of the sound and the intrusion is on the wildlife in our eagerness to get there and experience it. Have you thought about all these other, you know, all these other places that uh, where a similar thing as what you're writing about is also going on? Yeah, you know, I I think that I mean, look, noise, road noise is the perfect example of that because it, it's not only affecting animal lives, you know, it's not only this form of habitat loss as we've been discussing, it's also this huge infringement on human lives. You know, all of this noise pollution is elevating our blood pressures and our stress levels and making us more susceptible to cardiac disease and stroke and diabetes. You know, there have been there have been studies, uh, there's one study done in Paris that basically showed that, you know, controlling for all other variables, people who lived in the quietest neighborhoods in Paris lived three years longer than people in the noisiest neighborhoods. Wow. So, you know, road noise is, it's, it's again, it's, it's literally taking years off of our, off of our lives. I think it's one of the great unsung public health crises of our, our time. And yet, because we're so 
constantly surrounded by it and inundated uh, with it, you know, we don't really notice it. I, I spent, uh, you know, most of the time that I, I was working on this book, I was living in uh, in Spokane, Washington. And, oh. you know, my wife and I lived a stone's throw from I-90. Uh, and, we, you know, we lived on this busy arterial road that led to the, the interstate. Uh, so there were, you know, there were these cars racing by our house uh, every 15 seconds, you know, with <laughs> engines roaring. And then there was like the kind of the constant uh, hiss of the interstate, uh, you know, a half mile away. And, you know, we had really never noticed that. And yet, you know, as I dove into the 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 road noise pollution literature, it was, it was sort of like, holy cow, this is I mean, this is literally killing us uh, in a, a lot of ways. And, you know, once you become aware of it, it's it's really hard to unhear it. So, you know, when we moved to Colorado a couple of years ago, you know, we actually prioritized looking for a, a quiet street, um, you know, to escape this road noise. And, you know, that's a, that's a, a form of privilege that we could we could find that that sort of thing. You know, not everybody can. And yet, you know, I think there are things that we can all do in our lives and communities to reduce that noise pollution impact uh, on both uh, other species and on, on human lives. Are you up in Rocky Mountain pretty often? Uh yeah, from from time to time, yeah. What's uh what's are are they kind of getting with the pro- I'm trying to think the last time I was there it hasn't been that long, but I don't think we had to ride shuttles. I think we were able to drive through it. What's what's the situation now? Yeah, there is there is a, a shuttle or two to uh, some of the the really popular uh, trailheads and and spots. Um, so that that you know that the shuttle opportunity does exist, uh, but I don't think they've actually closed and uh, anything to uh, to private vehicles. I could I could be wrong about that. Hmm. I want to talk about Brazil. Um, it, this is this is really interesting. Your chapter on what Brazil is doing was a real revelation. Because road ecology seems to be a thriving science there. But I think first, uh, it would be great to hear your experience with Evelyn. Can you tell us that story? <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Evelyn yeah. is uh, so Evelyn is a giant anteater um, who I, I've met <laughs> in, uh, in in Brazil. And you know, I mean, giant anteaters are they're they're, they're just the weirdest uh, creatures imaginable. They're, and they're so wonderful. You know, they have these long tube-like snouts. They don't have teeth. They have this tongue that flickers out as they, you know, lap up ants and termites. They have these big sort of broom straw-like tails that trail behind them. They have these giant claws that they, uh, you know, use to dig into termite mounds. They're just, they're, they're just the weirdest uh, kind of uh, amalgam of, of uh, cobbled together parts. They're really interesting creatures. And you know, unfortunately, they're they're frequently hit by cars. You know, Brazil is uh, is you know it's it's a it's a really interesting country from a road ecology perspective because it's you know it's the most biodiverse country in the world, uh, and it's also one of the countries that's building up its infrastructure uh, most rapidly. So it's you know it's a place where wildlife and uh, and road construction are you know really at, at loggerheads in a lot of ways, and you know giant anteaters are on the front lines of that, you know, there are these animals that have to wander, uh, you know, large distances looking for uh, ant- anthills and termite mounds. And, you know, those those wanderings lead them across roads and, and uh, you know, they get they get hit in, uh, you know, pretty, pretty significant numbers. And again, it's, you know, it's one of those species for which roadkill is you know truly a, a, an existential threat, at, at least to some some populations. Uh, and so Evelyn was, you know, one of the 
anteaters that scientists were studying. There's this big Brazilian road ecology movement, and there's a, a whole project called Anteaters and Highways, which is you know exactly what it sounds like. And so Evelyn was you know one of their study animals, and they had put this uh, this satellite collar on her, and we had to go out and and uh, recapture her, which they basically do using this giant net, uh, and then they can you know they can download all of the the uh, the GPS points from her collar and you know figure out uh, when she's been crossing roads and where and and uh, you know if you were going to build a wildlife crossing for anteaters you know where might you put it uh, you know what sorts of habitats do these uh, do these creatures use and so it was yeah it was really cool to see you know the same sorts of of problems and solutions uh, being developed in a, a very different context. What's what's the situation with road building in the Amazon? And then I want to I want to talk a bit about what happens now that um, there's a new president, a new old president back, Lula da Silva. But but where do things stand with road building through the Amazon? Yeah, so you know, it's a, it's a it's a good question. I mean, certainly, um, you know, there are new Amazonian highways being built, and there are existing dirt highways that are being paved right now. And that's you know, that's that's uh, almost just a, as large an issue because it you know it, it invites more traffic moving faster. Uh, you know, and I think that one of the you know one of the points that the that highways in the Amazon really reveal is that, you know, is that it's not just the road itself that's the problem, right? It's all of the forces that the that roads set in motion, you know. Uh, there are something like 100,000 illegal, uh, miles of illegal logging road uh, in the Amazon that sort of spiderweb off from these, you know, these main government-built highways. And, you know, wow. it's, it's uh, you know, before you can get, uh, you know, get logs out of the Amazon, right? You need the roads to, you know, get the machinery in and to get the product out. You know, roads have in the Amazon facilitated uh, all of the, you know, the, the land use clearing that, uh, you know, I'm sure listeners are familiar with, you know, it's, it's that, that's the force that really catalyzed, uh, you know, burning and the conversion of rainforest to cattle pasture and soybean plantations. Uh, you know, you need roads to, to facilitate that, that uh, industrial activity. And, you know, I think what the Amazon reveals is that again, you know, a, a little, a little dirt highway in the middle of nowhere doesn't seem like that big a problem. You know, it's only a hundred feet from, you know, from, from, uh, from shoulder to shoulder. And yet, right. you know, that highway sets in motion, these processes that, uh, that profoundly alter landscapes. There's, you know, there's a great quote from one, uh, Amazonian ecologist saying, you know, look, if you wanted to save the Amazon, uh, the thing you should do is bomb all the roads because those are, you know, those are truly the, the forces that uh, are catalyzing all of the deforestation and land clearing that we, we see today still. I thought this was really interesting. You say in that chapter, no tropical country is home to as many road ecologists and and projects spring up constantly. Underpasses for pumas and tapers, a new bridge for a resplendently furred monkey called the golden lion tamarin. I mean, it seems like scientifically they are really ahead of the curve on road ecology. It is... But but does that mean they are not yet keeping up with all of the, what, illegal road building or or they haven't been able to unwind uh, some of what happened under Jair Bolsonaro, the, the recent president? Yeah, I think, you know, I think I think that's I think that's true that, uh, you know, that that Bolsonaro did. I mean, look, that was one of his campaign platforms, you know, was was constructing roads uh, in, in the Amazon. And, you know, his one of his ministers uh, was known as the, the paver general of the republic. That was like, you know, that, that was his that was his his whole thing, you know, wow. was, was building 
building infrastructure. Um, and, you know, but, but it's, look, it's also something that, uh, you know, that, that Lula has talked about as well as, you know, he, I mean, he's, you know, certainly better uh, on, on Amazonian conservation than Bolsonaro ever was. Uh, and yet, you know, he's, he's, he also uh, campaigned at least partly uh, on the construction of new highways because, you know, I, I, again, I mean, we, as, as we've been talking about, you know, roads, roads are useful, you know, they, and they, they, you know, there are lots of, uh, lots of research showing that they, you know, they improve human quality of life in, in, uh, in many ways, you know, again, they're how we get to schools and hospitals and all of the services that, you know, that we take for granted, um, you know, and, and so I think that, you know, what, what road ecologists in Brazil are up against, and, you know, certainly Brazil is emblematic of this, but it's also the case in Kenya and Myanmar and many other countries that are also uh, developing uh, very rapidly, you know, what they're faced with is, look, you know, some of these roads are certainly inevitable. Uh, some are probably desirable from a, you know, a human welfare and economic development standpoint. Um, so how do we how do we figure out which roads we absolutely have to prevent and you know the the ones that are inevitable and desirable how do we make those as least bad as possible for lack of a, a better phrase you know what can we do and maybe that's you know, figuring out, you know, where the core habitats for wildlife are and, you know, routing the road uh, around those core habitats. You know, maybe it's putting in uh, wildlife passages, uh, you know, when you really can't uh, avoid those core habitats, uh, you know, to allow animals to, to move around a little bit. You know, one good example of that uh, in India, there's a very famous uh, highway that was uh, built through the middle of a, a tiger sanctuary, which, you know, certainly is undesirable. Uh, but, you know, in that case, they actually put the highway up on these giant concrete pillars. So it's the highway is mm. elevated for many miles. Uh, and so you know, animals can move back and forth uh, safely, you know, hopefully undisturbed by, uh, you know, by this, this, giant highway that's kind of arcing over their over their heads so you know that's that's what all of these countries are up against is you know is, is uh we're in the middle of what some ecologists have called the infrastructure tsunami you know this wave mm. of new construction uh all over the developing world um you know that has the potential to lift many people out of poverty but you know also has the potential to wipe out wildlife uh in in many places and so how do we you know how do we do that uh, development uh, as least as as non-catastrophically as possible. Right. Uh, that's the big question. You know, Ben, I, I think to come back to the United States, I think the challenge here is that so much of our infrastructure is set, right? right. You don't, there aren't a lot of states that are tearing up uh, highways that are, that are, have already been laid down. Right. So w- what is the challenge here to really persuade more states and, counties and municipalities to do what I was talking about with the the overpass or, you know, the, the turtle tunnels or, I mean, is that really the answer here? I, I you know, I think in, in many cases, it's, it's what we're stuck with, you know, as you, as you say, we're, you know, we have this, this kind of calcified existing infrastructure that we've had, you know, since the 1960s and 70s. And right. look, realistically, you know, we're, we are not going to uh, demolish the interstate highway system, right? So we're, you know, we're, we're, we, we are stuck retrofitting it to, you know, make it uh, as, uh, as, as ecologically benign as possible. And that's, you know, immensely uh, challenging and, you know, probably inadequate. I mean, it is, in, it is inadequate in a lot of ways. And yet, you know, there, there is a lot that we can do with the infrastructure that we that we have to you know to make it more amenable to wildlife, you know, there's one great case study, uh, you know, that I, I write about uh, in in Virginia, uh, the stretch of uh, of I-64 that had uh, tons of white-tailed deer collisions as well as collisions with foxes and black bears and other other creatures, and you know, and, and there, 
All, all the Virginia Department of Transportation did was put up a, a roadside fence between two big box culverts, you know, and these culverts, they weren't built for wild animals. You know, one was built at a stream crossing and one had been built decades earlier uh, for a dairy farmer who had herd his uh, his cattle uh, under the highway through this, this box culvert. Um, but by putting up a fence between these two existing culverts, you know, they could direct uh, deer and foxes and opossums and black bears and other creatures to these these crossings. And, you know, again, these crossings were not built for wildlife. They were just part of the existing infrastructure on the landscape. But, you know, animals used them very readily when the fences kind of pointed them toward these these crossings. So, you know, not every wildlife crossing project has to be a big multi-million dollar bridge. You know, there's there's a lot we can do with these, you know, cheaper, easier tweaks and retrofits, uh, you know, to make our, our roads uh, more amenable to animals. And again, that's, you know, that's not... That's not the entirety of the solution, uh, but you know, it, it's uh, there's there there are opportunities out there for us to take advantage of. You know, Ben, you you did a lot of traveling for this, and you observed a lot of road ecology in action. And I, I guess, I was just curious about one of the most surprising things that that you learned in researching this. I was really surprised to learn about about the history of the U.S. Forest Service, you know, which is a, oh. a fascinating, uh, fascinating federal agency that uh, unbeknownst, I think, to basically everybody is actually the single largest manager of roads in on the entire planet uh, is the is the Forest Service. There are close to 400,000 miles of Forest Service road uh, wow. in the United States, uh, you know, and most of them are old dirt logging roads, you know, that don't uh, don't get a lot of use, um, but, you know, are still ecologically uh, harmful in lots of ways. You know, they're constantly eroding and dumping sediment into streams and, you know, smothering fish eggs and causing all of these other problems. And so, you know, the Forest Service uh, very slowly and certainly not nearly as quickly as they should be, but, you know, they're chipping away at, at uh, obliterating uh, a lot of these old uh, dirt dirt Forest Service roads, you know, taking heavy machinery in and tearing them up and replanting them and trying to help nature reclaim these these structures. And so I just found that fascinating, you know, the fact that, again, you know, they're not, they're not big interstate highways, you know, they're these little dirt roads in the middle of nowhere that, you know, nobody ever drives on. Uh, they still have big impacts. And yet, you know, we can we can get rid of them you know our not all of our infrastructure is uh, is forever you know there there are uh, you know there are roads out there that we can remove uh, with great benefit to nature Ben Goldfarb's book is called Crossings How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet really interesting conversation Ben thanks so much thank you so much for having me 